it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are all unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. <clears throat> not at all mean the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy and the swindlers, or the idolaters, since you would need to go out into the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkler, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. First Corinthians chapter 5, if I was planning uh, what we call a topical series, um, where you're kind of jumping around, picking different verses, talking about different topics, uh, I wouldn't come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and say, yeah, let's preach this one. Uh, this is not a chapter that the church growth books tell you to preach on or talk about. It is not a fun, exciting, uplifting chapter, it's sad and weird and depressing, and it's something that no one wants to do or talk about, but yet we find it's in the Bible. It is the very words of God, and it is full of commands that the church should be ready to obey. Uh, and it's not a chapter that stands alone. There are tons of other passages that address this same topic, and, and so we come to this chapter, and we need to be taught from it. We need to learn to obey it and to be thankful to God for this instruction. No matter how difficult it may be, it is still for our good. And this is why it's so important for us to, I think, primarily be preaching through books of the Bible because it forces you to come to chapter 5 and preach on it and talk about it and not skip over it. Uh, and so we want to learn from it, be challenged by it. Um, and so 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is what is formally known as, the topic is formally known as what is called church discipline. Uh, now, there are a lot of churches that have practiced church discipline uh, very poorly. Um, and there are a lot of churches that don't practice it at all. But our task as a church is to be faithful to God's word and to do what he says because we trust God's wisdom more than our own wisdom. So we want to do what God says. Now, church discipline, if you do not know what that is, is a process laid out by Jesus in Matthew 18, where over the course of months, uh, if a member of our church or a church is engaging in willful 
unrepentant sin. Those are key words, willful, unrepentant sin. And people in the church begin to call them to repentance, to call them to change, to call them to stop living in this sin uh, that they're actively engaged in. Matthew 18 says, you know, go with one. If they refuse, go with two. If they refuse, go with more. If they refuse, you know, upping the ante of the number of people that go and then upping the ante of, of a level of authority until you get to the church. Uh, it says, if they won't listen to you, bring them before the church. And if they still won't even listen to the church, treat them like an unbeliever. If they refuse to repent, remove their membership, re- uh, kick them out of the church. Now, what we're not saying in this process is get off our property. You're not allowed here. That's not what we're saying. In fact, we're saying quite the opposite. We're saying, no, please come. But we're removing membership uh, because we don't, we're no longer in good conscience believe that this person is a Christian. And so, really, it's a changing of tactics to say we're no longer calling you to repentance. Instead, we're calling you to faith. We're calling you to believe in Christ for the first time. And I'll talk about that more here in a minute. So that's kind of just, I I wanted that understanding in the back of your minds of church discipline as we walk through this. Because uh, as we walk through this text, I think God is showing us really four main things about the nature of church discipline. Uh, And so kind of four questions and headings if you want to write these down. Uh, The why of church discipline, like why do we do it? Uh, The goal of church discipline, the consequences of not doing it. Uh, and then when does a church do this? Uh, so why does a church do it? What's the goal of it? What are the consequences of not doing it? And when should a church do this? So the first question, why church discipline? Why, why do we do this? Um, here's the point. Write this down. Uh, the church must practice church discipline in order to take sin seriously. All right, so the church must practice church discipline in order to take sin seriously. So why should a church take sin seriously would be the next logical question. Uh, it's a good question. Why not just let people live their lives and figure out things for themselves? Why get up in people's business? Why would we ever tell someone that they're living wrongly, that their actions are wrong, and that they should change? You know, right now in our culture, there's this idea of cancel culture. It's kind of like this big thing. All right? And sometimes people rightly get, quote, unquote, canceled. And sometimes people get canceled for very silly things, right? Um, but there is a tendency... For Christians, I've noticed, to hear about someone that they like, someone they respect, someone they follow, someone they look up to, uh, that person getting canceled because they've done something actually bad, right? Like they've done something actually very poor, very bad. And Christians dismissing that as mere, quote unquote, cancel culture. When in reality, the person has done something bad enough that they should no longer be platformed and they should no longer be celebrated. They should no longer be a model to be followed. And the problem is the world, quote-unquote, or unbelievers, or as Paul uses here, pagans, realize that this person has disqualified themselves from being in whatever position they're in by their actions. They've disqualified themselves by their actions. And the world gets that and, quote-unquote, has canceled them. The world is calling a spade a spade. This is bad. While Christians have sometimes looked at that and said, no, that's just cancel culture. And that's Paul's first point here in the text. And I love how he starts it out in verse 1. He says, it is actually reported. And you can, you can hear the dumbfoundedness from Paul, right? You can hear the, the ludicrousness. He says, like, guys, it is, this is literal. It is actually reported. Mind-blowingly so. 
that there is sexual immorality among you, and not just any old sexual immorality, if that wasn't bad enough, but a man is sleeping with his father's wife, probably his stepmother. And then he says, that is not even tolerated among the pagans. Guys, the, the, the Romans, right, the Corinthians is a city in Rome, the, the Corinthians were no saints. Uh, these people make our modern, modern sexual problems look like preschool. These guys, sexual promiscuity was all the rage. They had temple prostitutes, and they had all kinds of things going on that I'm not going to talk about for the sake of the littles. Let's just say they were bad. And Paul is saying, as bad as they were, they know that incest, that this guy sleeping with your stepmother, is off limits. They know this is wrong. And see, Paul is just as concerned with this church's lack of concern about this sin as he is the concern about the sin itself. He's concerned with this church's not caring about this sin going on. You see, the church should be an example of holiness, an example of godliness, an example of goodness, an example of morality and ethics. And instead, in this situation, the world is getting it right, while shockingly, the church is getting it wrong. The world is showing the moral example while the church is failing. And Paul is aghast that the world's standards would be higher than the church's. And this is the church not taking sin seriously. And when the church does that, it loses all credibility. A few quick bullet points I want to point out of, uh, that I want you to write these down of why we should take sin seriously. Number one, we take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. God takes sin so seriously that when his first people ate a piece of fruit that he told them not to, he kicked them out of paradise where they would no longer be able to eat from the tree of life and they were going to grow sick and die. God takes sin so seriously that, that one time these guys were carrying what was called the Ark of the Covenant, which was like God's presence manifest in this, like, this big chest thing. And they had to carry it on poles so that because they, they couldn't touch it because it, it was the holiness and reverence of God. And so they're carrying it on poles, and they're moving it to the new temple. And as they're going, one of the guys trips a little bit. And as he trips, the, the Ark begins to fall, so he puts his hand up to stop it. And the moment he touches the Ark, he drops dead. Because God takes sin so seriously. His life was forfeit when his sinful nature came into the presence of the holiness of God. God takes sin so seriously that when his people, the nation of Israel, rebelled against him to worship false gods, he raised up a foreign army to come march in the nation of Israel to wipe them out, to kill them, and to take them as slaves back to Assyria and to Babylon. To live in exile for generations until they could get their act together. You see, we take sin seriously because... God takes sin seriously. The second thing is we take sin seriously because we are the reputation of God. We are the reputation of God. How is it that unbelievers, that the world, think anything about God? Well, they look to his followers. And they judge God based on the actions of his followers. And it's amazing that one of the top reasons people say they don't believe in God is because of the moral failings or, or inconsistencies or hypocrisy of Christians. Even Gandhi said that he liked Jesus, but he could not get past how unchristlike the Christians were. You know, when you read the Old Testament, you see this phrase over and over and over again, and that's God says, I'm going to do this for my namesake. 
and all kinds of things. He's going to do this. He's going to raise this person up. He's going to wipe out that army. He's going to bring justice. Or he's going to save this person. He's going to do something for my name's sake. You see, God cares about his reputation in the world. And he wants people to know him rightly, to know him truly. And as we represent God to the world, that means we have to take sin and holiness very seriously. The third thing is we take sin seriously because sin destroys lives. Sin is not neutral. Sin is not just bad things that we sometimes do. Sin is an enemy that creeps into our lives little by little uh, and tries to take more and more of us uh, where it is a roaring lion trying to devour us. You know, sin works like where the first time it just calls you to look at that woman a little longer. And step by step, you find yourself in that woman's bed and then divorced and your kids taken away and life in shambles. Sin is not fun that God says we can't have. Sin is a lion trying to bite your head off and you're just petting it. Ask anyone who has been in the grips of sin for long and they'll tell you that it breaks you, it hurts you, it destroys your life and those around you. Finally, we take sin seriously because it took a heavy cost to remove our sin. Paul says in Romans 6 that we've died to sin, so how can we still live in it? Kind of a a question. And the answer is we can't. But how is it that we've died to sin? We've died to sin because someone else died for us to take our sin away. Sin always incurs a debt, and debts have to be paid, and our sin debt has to be paid in blood. And not just any blood, but the blood of a lamb. And not just any lamb, but the blood of a perfect lamb. And not just any perfect lamb, but an infinite, eternal perfect lamb who is Jesus, God himself. It is the blood of God that can wipe away our sin. Jesus, the Son of God, sheds his blood, gives his life as the only possible payment to remove your sin and my sin. And so being in Christ, we have died to our sin because someone paid a lot to get rid of it. And when we continue a life of sin, it is a mockery to the price that God has had to pay. And how callous we must be to continue willingly sinning in something that cost God to, spare his, to not spare his son. You see, we take sin seriously because sin enacted a heavy price. A price we couldn't pay but that God paid for us. And so sin can never be trivial to us because we know the cost of it. It is quite literally deadly serious. If the church were just a social club, if the church were just a meeting of religious ideas, if the church was about potlucks and community outreach, then we could look the other way and not be concerned about the whims and failures of others. But if the church is the bride of Christ, bought with his blood, and an embassy of a future kingdom coming, then living for his reputation, knowing the cost, knowing the damage of sin, we cannot take it lightly. We cannot excuse it. We must take it seriously. And so the reason that we practice church discipline is because we think sin is an enemy. It's not just a thing we do. It's an enemy. It destroys lives. It's a really big deal. And we take it seriously or it will ruin our credibility and God's credibility, ruin his reputation and make a mockery of the cross. And so Paul writes the Corinthian church an abhorrent shock that the unbelieving pagans have more moral credibility than the church. And we, church, must be ever diligent, must be ever diligent that we do not fall into the same prideful arrogance that the Corinthians did here. 
See, they, commentators kind of speculate on what's going on, but maybe they believe that they'd kind of grown past these ideas of morality, and they were actually better than the pagans because the pagans were still even worried about this, and now they, they kind of got higher thinking, higher morality, that these ideas of morality don't apply to them anymore. Whatever the case may be, they've come up with some rationale of why morality is no longer a big deal for them. And whatever their justifications were, Paul, the scriptures, God's word is clear that pagans, unbelievers, the world should not have more moral credibility than the church. The church should represent Christ by taking sin seriously. Paul says that they were arrogant, verse 2, in their approval of this man's sin, when instead they should have been in mourning. The church should mourn over the sins of its members particularly. Now, I hesitate to, to use this illustration, and uh, I, I honestly hadn't decided whether I was going to do it until I got up here. But, uh, and I hesitate to use this illustration because I think for some of us, it may be uh, a stumbling block when we can't hear it. Uh, but, but I think it's important that we do. Um, a few years ago, there was, a, there was a man running for political office. And Christians were pretty excited about him for whatever reason. And this man, well, a tape leaked of this man, and he used language about how he grabs women and they like it and that they should take it. And how he can do whatever he wants to whatever woman he wants. And that came out, and the excuse from Christians was, oh, that's just locker room talk. And in that moment, we lost our moral credibility. The church should stand as clear as day on what is right and what is wrong. And never sell our soul to any cause that we care about and lose our moral credibility in supporting it. Because like Paul is saying here, if the world is shouting that this thing is wrong and the church has moral ambiguity, however you say that word, about it, we lose our credibility. And why would anyone listen to us when we sell our souls for political power? I hope you hear that. Because as Paul says, we should not be arrogant over sin. Instead, we should mourn should mourn. You know, there are two wrong reactions we can have toward the sin of others. Well, on the one hand, we can excuse them, make up excuses for their sin. It's just locker room talk. If you talk like that in the locker room, we're going to have a conversation. Or you can approve it. You can celebrate it. That's happening in churches today, right? There's celebration of sin. Both making excuses and approving it are wrong, but, but it's also wrong for us to come in a gloatful, boasting, prideful, looking down our noses at people thinking I'm better than you because of your sin. No, we're not better. We don't come from a place of high, highness and shun you. Both of these reactions are wrong. The scripture says the right reaction that we have when we see someone in our family or someone caught in sin is mourning. It's grieving. We don't look at a brother or sister caught in sin and go shouldn't have done that. You know better. Instead, we hurt with them, and we go and help pull them out of it. 
Our hearts are broken. You see, a sin-sick church will boast in affirming and accepting sin. And a gospel-filled church will mourn and be broken over sin. A sin-sick church will boast, look at how modern we are. Look at how progressive we are. Look at how advanced we are. Look at how uh, affirming we are. And that's a church that's lost its way. A gospel-filled church will mourn and cry and pray and grieve with the sin of, sins of its members. You know, we love this idea that the Bible teaches that we're not supposed to judge people. Um, but the, at the 9 verses 9 through 13 kind of really tell us, hey, you're not really supposed to, like, just don't be concerned with, like, outsiders, like, random people. Like, the, our job is not to come down on them. Our job is to make sure our house is in order. Our job is to make sure that we have moral credibility by us not being hypocrites and us uh, uh, holding the line and us not being caught in sin. And when a member of our church is caught in sin in a pattern of sin, like this guy in Corinth who was sleeping with his, his stepmom, Paul uses the present tense. This is an ongoing sin. It's not like a one-off thing. Right? This is an ongoing thing that's been happening and is still happening. And when that is happening, God's word says in verse 2, remove him from among you. Remove them from among you. For Paul, removal from the church is the obvious conclusion when someone is living in sin while claiming to be a Christian. So why do we practice church discipline? We practice church discipline because we take sin seriously, like God does. The second question we've got to ask is, what's the goal of church discipline? What's the goal? Well, the goal of church discipline is restoration. The goal is always restoration. We're not doing this to gloat or because it's fun. It ain't. We're doing this because we care and love people. We want to see them restored to God and to us. We've already said that our response should be grieving over prolonged sin in the church, and it should break our hearts. Well, when you understand that posture that we have towards sin, that it grieves us, it breaks our hearts, that it's, it's not us being high and mighty, it's us broken over the situation, then you understand the goal of church discipline is always restoration of the person caught in sin. Here's what Paul says in verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, this is a weird verse, okay? What in the world does Paul mean by give this person to Satan? Right? It seems intense, right? It seems crazy. Well, we know what his intention is because he says that he wants to do this so that his, in the end, his spirit, his soul might be saved. The other way that we can know what this means here is that the only other time this phrase is used, and even this idea of God giving someone to Satan is used, is in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, God hands Job over to Satan. And when God does that, Satan inflicts every physical, bad thing that you could think of that could happen to someone, it happens to Job. His family dies, he gets sick, he gets boils all over himself, he, uh, he loses all of his property and wealth. Like literally everything that bad happened could, could go happen, goes wrong for him. But God was working in Job's life and Satan was the means or the tool in God's hand that he was using to accomplish God's purposes. And in Job 42.6, Job says, "My eye, after Job has lost everything, been sick, he's like at the end of himself, my eyes have seen the Lord, and I repent 
and dust and ashes. Job is humbled and he repents. And then he is restored and everything that is lost in him, he gets it back and more. There's another example of this kind of idea and to Paul himself. It just hadn't happened yet. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he calls that he, he, he has this thing going on in his life. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. And he says, it is a messenger from Satan sent to harass him. We don't know exactly what this suffering, this ailment, this thing that he's got going on was. He doesn't tell us. But God tells him that the suffering he's going through is God's grace to him. And Paul is able then to glorify God all the more and rely on God's strength and not his. Because he says, look, if it wasn't for this thorn, I, among all men, had every reason to be prideful and arrogant and on top of the world. And God, in his grace, used Satan to mature me and keep me humble. And he praises God for the suffering that God uses Satan to inflict. In both situations, God uses Satan to inflict hardship on a person for their ultimate good and sanctification. So understanding that, when Paul says to the church to do church discipline on this man, by the, who, this man who's sleeping with his stepmom, stepmom, hand him over to Satan. I think what he's saying is, remove this man's membership. Make sure he understands you don't think he's a Christian. And cast him out into the world. And God is going to use Satan to make this man hit rock bottom. He is going to feel the shame and the absence of his community. He is no longer uh, going to, to feel, feel connected. And Satan may take everything from him. Satan may take his money, may take his health, and may take everything. And hopefully, that when he hits rock bottom, his eyes will be opened. And he will finally say with Job, my eyes have seen the Lord and I repent in dust and ashes. A sort of prodigal son situation. Let the man go and eat and sleep with the pigs, and hopefully he gets up and arises and returns to his father's house. You know, we don't want anyone to walk through a hardship like this. Like, this whole idea, like, makes me sick. Like, it should grieve us. But is it not better that someone we love would go through a physical hardship and hit rock bottom if in the end, they repent of their sin and either prove themselves to be a Christian or come to Christ for the first time. Is that not better than to play games with their sin, to treat it lightly or to excuse it or celebrate their sin? That they just go on with life and one day they die and go to hell, fooled into thinking they were Christians when the fruit of their life proved they were not. May they look back and go, church, why didn't you say something? Well, no one wants to ever hand anyone over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. I would rather them lose everything in this world and gain eternity with Christ than we do nothing that we might be comfortable and they might be comfortable so that they can comfortably go to hell. Parents know this firsthand. If you do not discipline your child, whether out of laziness or some misguided notion that your kids are your friends, uh, or out of this modern idea that you can reason with your four-year-old, you can't. I've got five of them. If you fail to discipline your kids, they will grow up to be terrors. But if you take the time to cause them pain of whatever variety you want, that's not hurt, you know, you know what I mean, uh, an appropriate level of pain. If you cause them to endure hardship, in the midst of their sin, 
It wakes them up. It trains them, and it shapes them into mature adults. Church discipline, like all discipline, causes pain in the hopes of restoration, in the hopes that they mature, in the hopes that they've lost their way and that they come back. Church discipline loves people enough to do the really, really hard, uncomfortable work of calling them out on their sins so that they repent. We do church discipline because we take sin seriously and because we want to see sinners restored to God and restored to the church family. The third question, what are the consequences if we don't do this? What are the consequences of not practicing church discipline? Well, I would say a failure to practice church discipline harms the whole church. A failure to practice church discipline harms the whole church. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, some of y'all hear that and you're like, what in the world is leaven? Well, leaven is basically yeast. So Paul is saying, don't you know that it just takes just a little bit of yeast to saturate the entire lump of dough? Just a little yeast in one lump of dough will cause the entire thing to rise and make bread. And he uses that analogy to say, y'all have to get rid of the old yeast. We are a people who have been delivered by Christ. We are, living, uh, our, we are leaving our old behind and walking in the new life, the new yeast, the new life, the new way of the Lord. His point is, if you allow this old way, the old yeast, to, to stay here, well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to infect the entire lump. If you allow the old beast, the old life, the old sin patterns to, to stay present, it will pollute the entire lump, the entire church. See, sin left unchecked will slowly erode the moral clarity of a church. And before long, what the church used to stand against, it will now allow or celebrate. I think the easiest example to look at in this is sexual sin. Like there was a time that churches didn't allow dancing because they thought dancing would, would, would lead people to be tempted uh, to sin sexually. Well, fast forward 100 years, and now sexual sin is pervasive in the church. Premarital sex is seen as normal. Kids will just be kids, we say. Moving in together before you're married is normal. That's just the way the world is today. Homosexuality and gender confusion are growing in the church, but church is allowing it or excusing it or outright celebrating it. And that's not to mention divorce rates among Christians are as high, if not higher, than the world. What happened? How did we get here? How did we go from not letting people dance, which y'all can dance, but how did we get from not letting people dance to this? When you see your family member caught in addiction, the most loving thing you can do is to do everything to get them out of that addiction, even if it hurts them. And the most loving thing we can do to someone caught in a habitual sin is do everything we can to pull them out of it. Sin unchecked will slowly erode the moral clarity of the church. I think we see it also clearly like this, not really in the church, but in the world. We see right now we're all mad about people tell me almost every week about how, man, I can't watch a TV show anymore. I can't watch a movie without uh, some homosexual agenda being shoved down my throat. And everybody's mad about it. Well, how did we get here? Well, fast, rewind, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years, and you'll see how we bought the tickets, we went to the shows, we clapped, we bought the DVDs, we, we said, have you seen this movie? And we celebrated hookup culture. 
We celebrated rooting for a divorce and chick flicks, rooting for affairs. Man, she needs to leave that scumbag and get with this guy. We celebrated and rooted for and approved of what we knew was immoral. And of course it led to here. And now we can't take it back. And that's the way sin always works. It's sin is like an acorn. You know, you, put, you see an acorn in the middle of your yard, and you go, oh, it's no big deal. I'll, it'll, it'll, I'll deal with it later. And you walk past it, and every day you walk into your house, you see that acorn laying there by the front door, and you ignore it because it's not a big deal. And then one day you walk by, and you go, huh, there's like this little sapling growing up. Where, where did that thing come from? That's crazy. And you just keep walking by, and, well, I'll deal with that later. And you mow around it, and you just keep walking by. And then one day you walk out your front door, and your door won't open because it's hitting a giant oak tree. You're like, what the heck? Where'd that thing come from? Well, it was that acorn that you didn't worry about that now has sprouted into this little sapling that's now a tree. And then you just go out the back door. You go out the back door and you go around and you keep ignoring it. And then a few years later, you look and there's a freaking forest in your front yard. And that's how sin works. Sin's a little acorn. You're like, ah, you know, don't worry about that. That's not a big deal. Nah, we just, you know, it's, it's 2023. You know, we'll just let kids be kids. You know, whatever. And all of a sudden, that little acorn grows into a little bitty baby tree, and then a tree, and then a forest. And then you're at a place. The acorn wasn't a big deal, it seemed. It was, it was stage one cancer. Now you're over here at stage five. You've got a forest of trees. Sin is all around you. It's consumed you. It's destroyed your life. You're like, how did I get here? Well, you got here because you didn't crush the acorn when you had a chance. And so now it's consumed your life. That's how sin always works. Leave it unchecked. Before long, it's infected the entire Church, your entire life, the entire church. And so Paul is clear. Deal with it before it takes over. Why do we deal with why do we do church discipline? Because we take sin seriously. What's the goal? The goal is restoration, the healing of the person. What are the consequences of not doing it? Sin infecting everything around us and ruining the moral clarity and witness of the church. Finally, last question. When does church discipline become necessary? Like when do we actually do this, right? When do we actually do this? Well, church discipline is necessary when no evidence of repentance exists. Like, I think it's just super clear. Church discipline is, is, ne- is only necessary when no evidence of repentance exists. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with the leaven of, of unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. When Jesus forgives us of our sins, he, does, he forgives us of all of them. Past, present, future, small ones, big ones, all of our sin. The gospel is good news because we received this forgiveness, though we did nothing to deserve it. And Paul mentions the Passover here, a time of Jewish celebration about how God saved uh, the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And do you remember how he saved them? He did it with the Passover lamb. The lamb, uh, the blood of the lamb was placed on the door frames. And when the angel of judgment and death passed over the homes to kill the firstborn son, if the, if the blood was on the door, he passed over. And it was spared because of the blood. But the Passover and the lamb and that blood points to a greater reality. That we are spared as well. We are spared. When the angel of death and judgment comes for us, we too are spared. Not because we're good people, not because we got our act together, not because we go to church, but because the blood of the lamb covers us. And that's really important to understand. Because when we talk about church discipline, we're not talking about kicking out people who sin. Because if so, I'm the first one out. Because if we're going to kick out everybody who sins, we're going to have an empty church. Because ain't none of y'all perfect. I know y'all. 
every one of us sin, continue to sin, and we'll sin until Jesus returns and makes us perfect. So then who is church discipline for? In verse 8, you see that this change is supposed to take place. As you celebrate the gospel, we don't celebrate the gospel by reveling in our old lives and how we used to live in malice and in evil. Instead, we've been changed by the gospel. The gospel doesn't just provide us forgiveness, it changes us. And so now we're walking in truth and in sincerity, we're walking in holiness. We, the gospel forgave me and now it's changed me. You see, the gospel saves us by sheer grace alone. We don't do anything to earn this thing. But the gospel doesn't just forgive us, it gives us new hearts, new desires. It declares us righteous in Christ and then God by his spirit in us is making us righteous, right? And so here lies the problem. If there is someone who is a member of our church, and by a member we mean we think you're a Christian, we think you're going to heaven, we think the Spirit lives inside of you. And if that person who is a member of our church, who we think is in Christ and converted and born again, if that person's life is all of a sudden marked not by victory and, and repentance and walking in faith, but is marked by a slavery to sin. That is sinning with no repentance. That is sinning with no remorse. That is sinning with no battle. No fight. Then we follow Matthew 18. And we go to them and we say, brother, you got to stop cheating on your wife. Stop. Call, your God has called you to be faithful to her. Repent. Brother, you got to get off the computer. you got to turn those websites off. It is destroying your marriage. It is destroying your life. you got to put the bottle down. Stop. You can't handle drinking. you got to stop it all together. When we go to them and they say, you know what? No, this is who I am. I just can't stop. This is who I am. I'm a drunk. I'm going to keep doing it. Then we go get another buddy. We come and say, brother, we love you. You're destroying your life. Stop this. Christ has called you to, to new life. Put this old stuff behind you. Put the needle down. Put the drugs down. Put the bottle down. Put the website down. Go back to whatever the case may be. Stop it. And they say, no, this is who I am. And if over the course of months of pleading with them and pleading with them to stop, repent. And if they don't, Paul says, remove them. Remove them because they've proven by all available evidence to be an unbeliever. They've proven that there's no fight in them. That the Spirit isn't convicting them. Because if you go to that brother and you say, put the bottle down, put the needle down, go back to your wife. And he says, it's so hard, but I want to do it. Will you help me? Yes! Yes, come here! We got you! We're not kicking that guy out. Let's fight together. We'll be battle buddies. We'll go to war together. And when you fall, we'll pick you back up. And we'll run. And when you fall, we'll pick you back up again. That's the Christian life. The Christian life isn't, hey, we're perfect. We're great. The Christian life is we fall and get back up and fall and get back up. We're all hypocrites. And it's but for the grace of God, we'd be bound for hell. But by God's grace, we're saved and forgiven. And now we can walk in newness of life and fall and get back up. But when you don't get back up, and when you refuse, and there's no remorse, and you say, no, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. And there's no change, no repentance. We've got to change tactics. We've got to say, okay, instead of calling you to repentance, we're removing your membership and hope to wake you up. Remove your membership, and then we're going to share Christ with you. Believe in Christ for the first time. Come to the gospel. Believe. We're going to treat you like an unbeliever, which means we change tactics. There are two basic fruits of genuine faith. Faith in Christ and repentance of sin. 
And if you don't have any repentance of sin, then there is no true evidence that the Spirit is working in your life. And so we're going to treat you like an unbeliever, which isn't to mean we hate you and get out of here. It means we love you and we're going to share the gospel with you. I have uh, never personally been under church discipline, but I have received discipline um, in, my li- in, in my life over sin. When I was about 16 years old, I was a pretty new Christian. I came to Christ at about 15, 16 years old, and I had the benefit of one of our pastors in our church. Uh, was like my mentor and discipler and very formal kind of mentor relationship. And uh, I had I'd messed up and I'd sinned in a way that I knew was wrong. And uh, I didn't think it was a big deal. I was probably trying to downplay it. Didn't think it was a big deal. And, and so I, I, I confessed it to my mentor, my discipler, and, and, he, pr- and, and he heard it, and, 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 he, and he grieved with me over that sin, and he prayed with me. He reminded me that God had already forgiven me, and I didn't need to live in shame. I didn't need to live in guilt. When we, I could let it go. We cried together. I repented. We hugged. I was like, all right, now we can move on. Let's go. But then the discipline came. I was leading worship every week uh, for our youth group, and I was leading in a lot of other ways in our church and in our youth group. And he told me that I had to step down from leading in all these ways for a month. <laughs> and I was shocked and crushed and like, what? We just dealt with it. Why, why are we doing this? I was confused. I was sad. And, and through tears in his eyes, he told me, he said, Christians, especially leaders, are called to be holy. And if you allow this small chink in your armor to go by as if it is no big deal, then the next time this same temptation comes, it will be all the easier to give into it again. He said, I know it is hard, but sin has consequences, and I want you to learn them now the easy way before sin forces you to learn them the hard way. And he hugged me, and then we cried, and for a month I didn't lead. For a month, I watched, and I reflected, and I hurt, and I ached, and it changed me forever. And I am thankful for the discipline of a trusted friend. Because without it, there's no telling how that sin may have consumed my life. But now I was taking it seriously. And God used that man and that discipline for my good, even though it hurt, even even though it was hard. I've always been grateful for that lesson. Because he did not take my sin lightly. I was able to learn that I can never take my sin lightly either. Guys, there are some of you in this room, and you are caught in a web of sin right now, and nobody knows about it. And, man, you are, you, you've, you're not in that acorn phase or that, that, uh, that, uh, that little sapling phase. Man, you got this big old oak tree, and it's raining down acorns, and it's, this sin has its clutches around you. You, you. you have some addiction. You've got some problem, you've got something, and it's a secret, and you're trying to fight it yourself. And let me just tell you, man, you can't fight this thing yourself. Stop trying to fight it yourself. That's what this church is for, that we fight these things together. We battle together. When we hear those things, we don't go, man, shame on you. We go, man, cling to the gospel and let us fight alongside of you. And so let's fight together. There are some of you in this room, and you, you, you don't fight sin. You don't wrestle with sin because you are of your father, the devil, and you belong to the devil, and you have not experienced the conviction of sin because the spirit does not live inside of you, and he does not convict you, and he does not change you, and you do not have new life, and you are dead. And so my invitation to you this morning is to come to Christ. Sin wants to destroy your life, but Jesus was destroyed so that it never could. 
Jesus was destroyed for you so that you could be forgiven and be found and made whole. So come to Christ. There are some of you in this room right now, and you are thinking about some sin in your past. And, and you think about this sin a lot because every time you think about it, you think about how you have repented of it a thousand times. And you've confessed it a thousand times, but yet the guilt and the shame of it have its clutches around your neck. And let me just tell you, you are not believing what's true of you in Christ. Jesus bled and died so that you did not have to feel the shame and the weight and the guilt of those sins of your past. They are gone. And the only person bringing them up to you is the devil who is called the accuser. And he's saying, don't forget this thing. Look at that. Look at that. Man, if you have confessed it to the Lord, Jesus forgives you fully. So let it go. Let it go. Brothers and sisters, hear me. The gospel, this good news of what Jesus has done, it is for sinners. It is for the worst of sinners. And the evidence that you belong to Jesus is not you living some perfect life. The evidence that you belong to Jesus is that your faith is in Christ. And even though you fail and you fall and you sin again and again and you, you hate it, you hate your sin and you turn from it and you fight and you fall again. Brothers, that's the Christian life. Sisters, that's the Christian life. We fall and we get back up. And so let the guilt go. Let the shame go. Trust Christ. Look to Christ. His blood is enough. You think your sin's too big? Trust me. It ain't. It ain't. It's like this big to compare to his blood. It will cover it. If you've asked for forgiveness, trust me, he's forgiven you, and so you can rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for a gospel that is good, a gospel that rescues and redeems, a gospel that makes us whole and makes us new, a gospel that doesn't leave us in our old life just forgiven, but a gospel that changes us and pulls us out of that old life, out of the entanglement and slavery to sin, and it gives us a new life, a life full of truth and goodness, and joy. I'm, th- I'm thinking, Father, of the, sto- of the so many stories in this room of people who were entangled and ensnared and entrapped in deep, gross, horrible, life-sucking sin. And that you came in and you freed them. And you gave them new life. And now they're following you and serving you. They get it. And Father, I'm thinking about people in this room right now that are alone and they're stuck in that sin. They're entangled and ensnared. And they think there's no way out and there's no hope. And that if anybody knew, they wouldn't love me and they'd want me gone. And that is the lie from the enemy who wants you to stay trapped and ensnared. Because God, we know that you want to set us free. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would break the chains of sin that have ensnared people in this room for so long. And that you would set them free. And you would not only forgive them, but give them new life. As only you can. As we sing this next song, I'm going to stand up here and if I can pray with you. If, I, if you need someone to confess your sin to and you don't have anyone that you can trust, you can trust me. You can come tell me about it. We'll fight it together. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, you're saying, Brent, I don't know about all this Jesus stuff. It sounds crazy, but I hope maybe it's true. Let me show him to you. He'll take you just as you are. Sin and all, warts and all. If you're here this morning, you're holding on to some sin, you can't let it go. Let me pray over you. Remind you of the gospel.
If I could pray with you about literally anything, I'd be, be my joy to do so. If you just need to stand this morning and sing to a king who sets us free, do that. God, give us the strength to respond the way we need to. We love you so much. In Christ's name we pray. All those people said, we'll stand together.